You're listening to a podcast from Remembering, Forgetting and Fulfilling 1916, a public conference which took place in Christchurch Cathedral, Waterford on March 18th and 19th, 2016. In this episode, The Political Abuses of 1916, a lecture by Professor Ronan Fanning. The Remembering, Forgetting and Fulfilling 1916 conference was recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media in association with HistoryHope.ie. Sound was by Jim McCabe. Professor Fanning was introduced by conference organiser, the Dean of Waterford, the very Reverend Maria Janssen. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. You're very welcome to Christchurch. Delighted to see you again. We're very honoured this morning to have Professor Ronan Fanning. If you're interested in history, you must have read his books. You read his articles and you're familiar with his insights. So I hope you really enjoy today. This conference was made possible through funding of the Priorities Committee of the Church of Ireland and through the hard work of volunteers and parishioners. You're very welcome. It is my great privilege to introduce Professor Ronan Fanning. Um, I want to begin by saying how pleased I am to be here and in particular by expressing my gratitude to the Dean, Maria Janssen, for inviting me, and not only that, for the extraordinary efforts that she's put into organising this conference. I might add, I think she gave me something like certainly 18 months' notice. It was the first, I've been pretty deluged subsequently with invitations to events commemorating 1916 or marking the centenary. But hers was the very first. And I remember thinking, hmm, Church of Ireland, Cathedral, Waterford, that's a bit different. So I was very intrigued and I was never in any doubt that I'd want to speak here. The title of what I'm saying tonight, this morning, is um, The Political Abuses of 1916. Now, there are, there are very few places in which the exercise of dispassionate analysis of 20th century history is as politically highly charged as it is in Ireland. The Middle East, Palestine perhaps in particular, is another such place. And the opinion of one of the most distinguished historians of that region, Professor Bernard Lewis of Princeton, is, I think, a very good point of departure for trying to make sense of the ragbag of controversy surrounding the contemporary commemoration of 1916 here. He has written of how, quote, those who are in power control to a very large extent the presentation of the past and seek to make sure that it is presented in such a way as to buttress and legitimize their own authority. Now that presentation, of course, will differ, will vary in accordance with the perspectives of different governments seeking to legitimize their authority. Thus, in Ireland, north and south, the 
presentation, the perspective, if you like, of, say, Arlene Foster will be very different from the perspective of Enda Kenny. But the object of both exercises is the same, to legitimize their own authority, the authority of their governments. Um, much of the history of 1916 is rooted in myth. Now, by myth, I mean any historical narrative which is either imaginary or fictitious or both, wholly in or in part. Some myths are founded on popular and often ancient traditions and are very important to the people who hold them. They can be transmitted orally, in writing, or through institutions. The myths with which I'm concerned here are of much more recent origins. Some of these myths were created, sustained, for contemporary political purposes. And those who seek to preserve the integrity of such myths, as well as those who seek to erect counter-myths in their pl place, want to legitimize their political purposes by cocooning them in the comforting cloak of a mythical past. Hence, although the aims of the, of the constitutional politician committed to the idea that nothing can be gained by violence, those aims are diametrically opposed to the aims of the paramilitary spokesman, convinced that his organization's objectives can only be gained by physical force. Both are anxious to plunder, to prostitute the past for the purposes of the present. The more intense the contemporary conflict between such competing legitimacies, the greater the temptation. One immediate cause of this obsession with the mythological that has become so characteristic of modern Irish historiography is the recrudescence of violence in Northern Ireland after 1968. And we should recall, before looking at that in a bit more detail, that the tension between the scholarly practice of history and the immediate political concerns of society has not always been so great. Indeed, that tension was much less acute when the founding fathers of modern Irish historiography, Theo Moody, who was professor of history in Trinity, and Robin Dudley Edwards, who was professor of modern Irish history in UCD, came together and established the Irish Historical Society in Dublin, the Ulster Society for Irish Historical Studies in Belfast, and the joint journal of the two societies, Irish Historical Studies. That was published for the first time in 1938 under their joint editorship. They were also prime movers in setting up the Irish Committee of Historical Sciences, which has since provided for the representation of Irish historical interests on the Comité International des Sciences Historiques. But that bold recital of how that came about 
is less significant than its timing. The years when that was happening, 1936 to 38, witnessed a constitutional revolution in independent Ireland. The settlement, embodied in the Anglo-Irish Treaty of 1921, was torn up and was placed, re replaced by the 1937 Constitution, and ultimately, and by, also by the External Relations Act of 1936, and by the Anglo-Irish Agreements of 1938. And these developments in the eyes of most Irish Republicans legitimised the authority of the state for the first time since independence. It certainly gave a much broader base to the legitimisation of authority than it previously existed. The corollary was the erosion of the ide ideological base of those who claim the right to take up arms against the state, in particular the IRA. Eamon de Valera summed it up, he was the architect of these changes in the 30s, when he told the Doyle the Irish people had established freely a state in accordance with their wishes. He passed a treason act. Anybody subsequently guilty of threatening the state or violence against the state could expect to be harshly treated. And internment in this part, in independent Ireland, was introduced during, without trial, which was, so it became such a cause of contention in Northern Ireland uh, when the crisis began there, after the crisis began there. Internment without trial was introduced in this part of Ireland during World War II and again during the 1950s. Because de Valera was absolutely determined, as were other Irish governments, that that kind of activity could no longer be justified under any circumstances. Now, in the first instance, however, the um, 1916, it's, it's I think important to note that 1916 did not occasion the interpretation of 1916, did not occasion much controversy, either among professional historians or among politicians. This was because controversy instead obviously focused on the treaty split, December 1921, and on the ensuing civil war. And pro and anti-treaty sides alike, they didn't have much in common, but one thing they did have in common is that they both claimed to be legitimate heirs to what happened in 1916. And not just Eamon de but W.T. Cosgrave, the head of government from 1922 to 32, were sentenced to death for their part in the 1916 Rising. In both cases, the sentences were commuted to life imprisonment. And that kind of consensus among political parties also found expression in the Republic of Ireland Act in 1948. Taoiseach at the time was John A. Costello, Attorney General during the 1920s. The Minister for External Affairs, as it then was, was Sean McBride, who as recently as 1936 had been the Chief of Staff of the IRA. And there's no question at that time of any questioning about 
the legitimacy of 1916. What about the professional historians? Well, there's a consensus there, or it's of a different kind. It's a consensus of saying nothing, a consensus of silence, which arises from the fact that the archival records for the revolutionary period are not yet available. The British were only subsequently to move to a 50-year rule, and after that, to a 30-year rule. I'll return to that in a moment. And the tradition in Irish historical studies, not just the tradition, but the constitution of Irish historical studies, prohibited the publication of any articles later than 1900. And that was that arose from a deliberate sense that this could only split and cause tensions among the divide, among the two societies. The Ulster Society, which was largely, although not exclusively, unionist, and the Society in Dublin, which again was largely, but not exclusively, nationalist. And in the first decades of the 20th century, not only nationalist mythology, but also what Theo Moody described as the mythology of Orangism, they were both irrevocably and utterly transformed. Nationalist mythology became firstly an integral part of the ideology of a successful revolution. The ideology of the only nation state established which survived without interruption in Western Europe after the First World War. Viewed from the nationalist perspective, the opposing mythology was similarly transmuted into the ideology of a no less successful counter-revolution. From the unionist perspective, that transmutation provided the ideological foundations for the establishment of Northern Ireland, just as the transmutation in nationalist mythology had provided the ideological underpinnings for the independent Irish state, notwithstanding the shattering impact of civil war upon the coherence of that ideology. Now, both, and it's important to stress this, were underpinned by violence. In the case of the Ulster Unionists, the threat of violence in 1912-14, the gun running, the arming, the setting up of the original government, they didn't even have to fire a shot. It worked. And then, of course, the revolutionary period, not so much 1916 as the success of the guerrilla war of 1919-21. Now, the excuse for not looking at archives began to evaporate in 1958, when the British passed an act which implemented an earlier recommendation that cabinet papers and departmental records should become available 50 years after their creation. In 1966, ironically, the 50th anniversary of 1916, that was liberalised, and that 50-year period was reduced 
to 30 years. Now, given that Ireland was then part of the United Kingdom, these releases of what had become, of course, British records, paved the way for a more definitive history of the Irish Revolution, albeit one based on British records. The release of relevant records in Ireland was much slower. So much so that when Professor F.X. Martin published in 1961 two memoranda of Owen McNeill's from 1916 that he discovered in the National Library, this was widely regarded as a turning point in the historiography of the 1916 Rising. And sensitivities concerning the Civil War contributed to the reluctance of successive Irish governments to open official records. And the first cabinet records in Ireland were not released until 1976. By that stage, of course, the violence of the Provisional IRA's long war was in full swing. Even then, there was no statutory obligation on Irish government departments to release records, and that was postponed until the National Archives Act, the Ireland's National Archives Act, which wasn't enacted until 1987. And it's only during these processes, it isn't until 1978, that the, Irish, the Constitution of Irish Historical Studies is amended in line with that. It provided that no articles could be published which, unless they related to a period more than 30 years before. Why did the Irish historical establishment move so much more slowly in this matter than the Irish, let alone the British political establishment? Some might say scholarly inertia is perhaps one of the answers. But acute awareness of the political sensitivities in an organization, a professional organization of historians that embraced North and South, and similar sensitivities about the Irish Civil War, well symbolized by the destruction of so many records, irreplaceable records, in the Public Record Office in Dublin, in Dublin's forecourts at the beginning of that war in 1922 were, were others. But perspectives change with the passage of time. In 1966, the 50th anniversary of 1916, the Irish government saw the Easter Rising largely through green-tinted spectacles. It rapidly discarded those in the 1970s, the early 1970s, because by then it had become as important for the Irish and British political establishments to le deny legitimacy to the provisional IRA during their long and bloody war as it was to sustain their own authority. Now, that governments seek to bend history to their political purposes is inevitable. And in some cases, I would argue in this case, it is actually to be welcomed. But what is politically imperative must never be confused with what is historically true. 
Or to put it more cryptically, more bluntly, history is not commemoration. And commemoration is not history. They're different animals, although there's obviously a close interrelationship. So much for the conduct of governments. But there are other non-governmental forces, pundits, publicists, polemicists, even some professional historians who should know better, who also fall prey to the temptation to pervert the truth about the past. Their motives have again been best described by Professor Bernard Lewis. They are those, he writes, who would rewrite history, not as it was, or as they have been taught it was, but as they would prefer it to have been. Their purpose of changing the past is not to seek some abstract truth, but to achieve a new vision of the past better suited to their needs in the present and their aspirations for the future. Their aim is to amend, to restate, to replace, or even to recreate the past in a more satisfactory form. And obviously in the case of the Easter Rising, those who so behave are in different camps with very different visions of what Lewis describes as the past best suited to their needs in the present and their aspirations for the future. One such camp, clamorously championed by, by John Bruton, argued that the bloodshed in 1916 was redundant because Ireland's independence had effectively been guaranteed by the Home Rule Bill enacted in September 1914. Now, the historical reality, I would argue, however unpalatable to all those who are opposed, as I am opposed to violence as a political instrument, is that there is not a shred of evidence to indicate that Lloyd George's Tory-dominated government of 1918-21 would have offered a larger measure of independence than that contained in the Home Rule Act of 1914, the one placed in the statute book but suspended for the duration of the war. For as Charles Townsend has rewritten in his first and his groundbreaking seminal work, which was published in 1973, I think, uh, the British Campaign in Ireland, he wrote there that on the British side, some form of military struggle was inevitable before Irish demands would be taken seriously. The, the historical reality, in other words, is that British parliamentary democracy had failed in Ireland. It had failed Ireland's constitution and nationalists in 1886, first term rule bill, 1893, second term rule bill, and again in 1914, when the Ulster Unionist threat of violence caused Asquith's government to abandon the enactment of the Home Rule Bill in the form in which it was introduced. Partition was thereafter inevitable. Again, I would argue that the enactment of the Home Rule Bill in 1914 
is much less historically significant than the fact that it was simultaneously suspended. Again, there is no evidence to suggest that any British government would have implemented in the form in which it was originally introduced. It was introduced in that form to keep the Irish Parliamentary Party sweet, to guarantee the Liberal government the support of the Irish votes in the House of Commons. The existing evidence, in other words, points all the other way. And interestingly, the British Prime Minister, Henry Asquith, had spelt out, he recognised, he was a very intelligent man, had spelt out the chilling implications of this failure of British parliamentary democracy to fulfil what he recognised were the legitimate aspirations of Ireland's constitutional nationalists. This was in a memorandum he sent to King George V in the autumn of 1913. The attainment of Home Rule had been for more than 30 years the political ideal of the Irish people, he explained to the King. It was the confident expectation that the bulk of the Irish people, oh, sorry, of the bulk of the Irish people, that it will become law next year, in 1914. If that expectation were yet again disappointed, as it had been, of course, in 1886, and again in 1893, the consequences, Asquith wrote, would extend into every department of political, social, agrarian, and domestic life. It is not too much to say that Ireland would become ungovernable, unless by the application of forces and methods which would offend the conscience of Great Britain and arouse the deepest resentment in all the self-governing dominions of the Crown. And that, of course, is precisely what happened when the Black and Towns and the Auxiliaries ran amok in 1920-21. Now, this bold recital of what happened does not demand any granting of approval, retrospective or otherwise, of the use of violence as a political instrument. But it does demand, as I keep stressing, a recognition of historical reality. It also poses the fundamental question about the purpose of the commemoration of the Rising. Should the blood then shed, inhibit, perhaps even prohibit, the Irish government from commemorating the seminal event on the path to absolute independence? Or to put it another way, should we be ashamed of our independence because it was achieved through violence? Garrett Fitzgerald asked in 2003 whether, and I'm quoting him exactly here, without the national revival in 1916-21, Ireland would ever have become a largely self-reliant country seeking to run its own affairs in its own way. Or would it have shrunk, as regrettably did Northern Ireland, into a dependent economic provincialism, myopically preoccupied about its share of British subsidies and social welfare provisions. A question perhaps even more relevant today when Gerry Adams sees nothing humiliating in rattling his begging bowl before David Cameron and for ludicrously insisting that Northern Ireland is entitled to a more generous welfare system than the rest of the United Kingdom. That's an example of his narcissism, I think on a par with a statement in the White House the last week 
when he chose to liken himself to Rosa Parks at the back of the bus. But let that pass. A related question is whether without the Irish Revolution of 1916-21, complete independence in the shape of a sovereign, independent republic in everything but name could ever have been achieved, certainly as early as 1937. And the independence then attained was reaffirmed by the old party commitment, again consensus, to a policy of neutrality in World War II. And as I mentioned earlier, it was then an inter-party government, the first inter-party government, which steered the Republic of Ireland's bill through the Doyle and thereby removed any remaining ambiguity about sovereignty. Thereafter, relations between Irish and British governments have been conducted on the basis of absolute equality between sovereign states. It is not easy for a new state to concede sovereignty, Garrett Fitzgerald also observed. But by 1972, the Irish were so secure in their sense of being a truly sovereign people that the proposal to embrace the European enterprise was endorsed by an overwhelming 83% of the electorate in a referendum. Gart Fitzgerald's conclusion was that Irish independence was in fact secured almost at the latest date in which it could have been usefully achieved. And that's another reason why we should commemorate the 1916 rising as the catalyst without which the status of a sovereign independent state might never have been achieved. Now, the mentality of those who cling to a contrary belief, to the belief that Irish independence could have been achieved without bloodshed, it seems to me has been neatly captured in a passage in Julian Barnes' novel, The Sense of an Ending, where he reminds us that history is more than, quote, the lies of the victors. It is also the self-delusions of the defeated. There seems to me to be no better description of the neo-Redmondite vision of the past, the vision of those who pride themselves on being the heirs of the Constitution and the nationalists who were democratically defeated by the Republican revolutionaries in the 1918 election. Now, there's another band or body of critics of commemoration of the Rising. They're inspired by different quasi-theological vision born of Catholic teaching in what I think of as the just war brigade of critics of the Easter Rising. This is not to dispute that the Rising failed to meet the test that before a war or rebellion can be considered just, it must have a prospect of success. One might come to a different conclusion, however, in regard to the guerrilla war of 1919-21, or if one takes the revolutionary period in 1916-21 as a whole. But in the last analysis, it seems to me that such theological considerations, however morally worthy, are historically irrelevant. Most of the signatories of the 1916 proclamation were not just Catholics, but devout Catholics. But for better or worse, what drove them was to launch a rebellion before the end of the Great War, designed to break the connection with Britain. 
And it seems to me to expect them to sit down before they launch their revolution and to start applying some theological litmus test of whether what they were planning met the criteria for a just war is little short of ludicrous. That's not the way revolutionaries work. Maybe it should be, but it's not the way revolutionaries work. And it's not the way revolutions work. Now, talk of just wars was initially in very sh short supply in the aftermath of the 1916 Rising. It figures, doesn't figure very prominently in the Catholic Church's initial reaction to the 1916 Rising. And here I think we should never forget that the Catholic Church in Ireland as elsewhere in the world, and Pope Innocent III was the great, first great exponent of this, is also a political institution. Insofar, its objectives may ultimately have to do with the next world, but it is conscious of the fact that it's functioning in a temporal context. And in this respect, it is no more averse than other political institutions to perverting the course of history for its own purpose. Oliver Rafferty, in a very fine article in the current issue of Studies, uh, which is devoted to such issues as the commemoration of 1916, he describes how the Catholic Church, the initial response to the rising, showed it at sixes and sevens. He demonstrates, for example, how the bishops were unable to agree on the wording of a pronouncement concerning the Catholic doctrine on rebellion. One draft statement was presented to the meeting of the bishops in Maynooth, the first meeting after the, after the rising, arguing that martial law should be ended and that the country should rally behind the Irish Parliamentary Party, which had brought the cause of home rule to the threshold of success. That failed to win the unanimous support of the bishops, and it was not issued. As one of the bishop put it bluntly, if the fractious element at present out for the destruction of the social order, get the upper hand, the church will suffer. And of course the concern of the bishops above all else was that the church must not suffer. So it was that only seven of the 31 bishops, when I say 31 bishops, I'm speaking of diocesan ordinaries, uh, their coadjutors and auxiliaries, only seven of the 31 openly condemned the rising in the immediate aftermath. Most, as Oliver Rafferty writes, decided that silence was the best policy. Now, I think the Irish Catholic Church's dilemma at this time has been very well identified in a seminal work published as long ago as 1973 by an American historian of of Irish history, David Miller, in a book called Church, State and Nation in Ireland. And he argues that what happens in Ireland in 1916-22, unlike the years of the Irish Parliamentary Party's ascendancy, was that state and nation 
go their separate ways. Faced with an evolutionary conflict between the Irish nation and what was a British state, epitomised by the gunboat, the Helga, shelling Sackville Street from the Liffey, and by General Maxwell's policy of execution, of executing the leaders of the rising under martial law, faced with that nation-state conflict, the Catholic bishops were always going to choose the nation. So it was, in Oliver Rafferty's words, that they tended to follow rather than to direct Irish public opinion. Insofar as they did bend to populist sentiment, he writes, it was to ensure that institutionalised Catholicism maintained its place in Irish society, as of course it did to horrendous effect in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s. The events of 1921-22, Treaty Split, Civil War, these effectively resolved the Catholic Church's dilemma arising from this tension between the, competing, between the competing demands of state and nation. Because the Irish Free State, whatever its republican inadequacies, was indisputably an Irish state. And the Civil War saw a decisive and agreed response by the Catholic bishops in their excommunication of those, in their statement excommunicating those who had the temerity to take up arms against the Irish state. However, discrete silence remained the order of the day for the first 50 years of the independent Irish state when it came to discussion of 1916. In these decades, there was no retrospective application of the doctrine of the just war to what had happened in 1916. It was significant, moreover, that when that wall of silence was finally breached, it was breached not by, from within the diocesan church, but by a Jesuit priest, Father Francis Shaw, who in 1966 wrote an article for studies that was a severe critique of Pierce, the blood sacrifice, and the rising. And even then, in 1966, that was a judge so untimely that its publication was withheld for another six years. Another Jesuit, Father Seamus Murphy, is among the leading proponents today of applying just war metaphysics about whether it is appropriate for the state to celebrate 1916 as a decisive event in the achievement of national independence. But as a recent letter to the Irish Times from Philip O'Connor, I don't know anything else about him beyond his name, has pointed out, Father Murphy's notions of just war are strange indeed. And here I cannot do better than to quote Mr O'Connor's letter, which to those who are interested was published on the 15th of January this year. Father Murphy claimed to be applying, this was in an article he wrote in 2003 in the Irish Catholic, 
He claimed to be applying the same theology of liberation when he publicly endorsed the US-UK invasion of Iraq, which apparently, unlike the 1960 rising, 16 rising, fully met the criteria of just war. Father Murphy wrote, quote, the people of Iraq want peace and an end of oppression. They want neither Saddam nor war, but given Saddam's addiction to war, he is likely, if left in power, to provoke more wars. That coupled with the oppression and terror far outweighs the burden of the US-UK invasion. At worst, the US-UK invasion is the lesser evil, at best a liberation. I don't know, after what's happened in Iraq in the intervening 12 years, whether Father Murphy still holds those views. But as Mr. O'Connor points out, following the achievement of independence, the people of the Irish Free State enjoyed 93 continuous years of peace. Following the US and UK invasion of Iraq, that country has experienced over a decade of the most horrendous warfare and destruction. We should be grateful, he concludes, to Father Murphy for revealing to us the faulty criteria, not so much of liberation theology, but of latter-day Jesuit casuistry. So much for Father Murphy. The 50 years' silence in 1916 was not, of course, peculiar to the Catholic Church. It was understandably even more evident in the Church of Ireland. And here I'm conscious, speaking in the Cathedral of the Church of Ireland, that I'm venturing onto very sensitive territory. So let me simply say this. One of the few beneficially cathartic effects of the contemporary controversy about how or even about whether we should celebrate the centenary of 1916. It has the opportunity, is the opportunity it has afforded not only members of the Church of Ireland, but all those who, for whatever reason, find it impossible to identify with what happened in 1916, to give voice to their opposition. We saw instances of that in the very interesting discussion after Charles Townsend's paper last night. And aspects of that discussion, after Charles Townsend's Maustilin lecture, showed how important that is. But much more important than that is the fact, because it is a fact, that a conference such as this can take place in 2016 in a Church of Ireland cathedral. And for that, not only members of the Church of Ireland, but all those who welcome, as I do, an open debate from which none should be excluded, owe Dean Maria Janssen their warmest thanks. Let me conclude by pinning my own colours to the mast in this debate. I am among those, as many of you are probably aware, who insist that the government of the independent Irish state, however it may be composed, and we still don't know that, of course, at the moment, 
cannot shrink from unabashedly celebrating not all that happened in Easter week 1916, but what so quickly became a seminal moment in the birth of the independent Irish state. Of those who think otherwise, may I simply ask this. In 1976, the 200th anniversary of the American Declaration of Independence, did the American government shrink from celebrating the bicentenary of the decisive moment in the birth of the United States because that state was born out of war? Does the French government, despite all its concerns about terrorism, shrink from the annual celebration of Bastille Day, notwithstanding all the blood that was shed during the French Revolution? However much we may condemn political violence, we cannot dispute that it is invariably, not perhaps inevitably, but invariably, a component in arresting independence from colonial powers. The history of how and why power changed hands in Ireland between 1916 and 1921 cannot be massaged out of existence in order to pretend that a British government would have ceded power to a native Irish government without the use of violence, however much we might hope that such a thing would have happened. That the birth certificate of this state, in common with so many other states, is stained with blood, must not mean that 2016 cannot be an occasion for celebration. Thank you. I don't think, I've, as of last night and today, I've listened to 55 minutes of subtle thought and it passing like five minutes. Thank you very, very much, Ronan. And now we have about half an hour for an open forum whereby you can comment, question, add to, detract from, disagree with, and as Professor Townsend said last night, let this space be filled with different voices. And now it's over to you. Thank you very much, Professor Fanning, um, for a really, truly enjoyable study. But I'd like to ask you this question. Is there not a real danger that the political reality of 1916 being the catalyst for our independence not be obfuscated by a 21st century desire for a politically correct and fully inclusive slash sanitized centenary commemoration? Sorry, would you, would you mind asking that again? I, I want to get the wording of your question absolutely right. Yes, is there not a danger that the political reality of 1916 being the catalyst for our independence not be sidelined or obfuscated by a desire in the 21st century for a politically correct and inclusive and sanitized commemoration? It's not a danger, it's happened already. Um, I agree with you absolutely. But here I come back to the point that, I mean, I think it's right to discuss... Uh, it's, I mean, 
get back to the distinction between commemoration and history. In the terms of commemoration and in the terms of being respectful of all traditions on this island, it is, I think, important that that be borne in mind and that that be politically correct. But this shouldn't be at the price of pretending that violence didn't work in 1916-21, because it did. I, I participated in a debate last year the, in a book festival in Kells when I was on a platform with Geoffrey Donaldson. Um, we, the, the, there was discussion, we were asked by the, uh, the chairman to, to um, compare you know, the Battle of the Somme and, and 1916, um, the events of the, the Rising. And, and I made the point, which I feel strongly about, is that while the Battle of the Somme is an extraordinary example, a remarkable example, which should be commemorated as an example of such sacrifice, it has nothing whatever to do with the foundation of the Northern Ireland state. A much more honest but politically difficult act on the part of the government of Northern Ireland, especially the present government, would be to celebrate the Lauren gun running, the establishment of the provisional government, and everything else that happened in what became the counter-revolution in 1912-14. Geoffrey Donaldson at first took umbrage at that, but then when I said, look, I said, I'm not trying to deny, I believe that one of the big mistakes that happened, the, the, the central, original mistake that happened, was that nationalists were so slow to acknowledge that Ulster Unionists were entitled to the same right of self-determination as nationalists. And once I said that, he was prepared to accept the point about the song. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Fanning. <clears throat> I'd just like to maybe throw out the view that cer certainly I will agree, I, I think it's indisputable that violence succeeded in 1916, but given the history of violence in our own country, particularly in the times of troubles in the North and the mythology that might have been used to justify it, is it not imperative on us also to maybe present an alternative scenario such as John Bruton is, is attempting to, to do? Surely violence wasn't inevitable. Surely like that there had to be you know, other possibilities. I know it didn't happen, but I think it's important that we engage with that dialogue as well. Rather than the tank just been, been, the whole commemoration just being steeped in kind of bloodshed and, and, and violence, I think the other dialogue is equally necessary, even though speculative as it may be. I think it is a very important one. And just finally, on the, the just war theory, like it has served well down through the ages and an application of the just war theory to 1916 i think it's it's inevitable that it, it the inevitable conclusion would be that the rebellion as such was unjust it satisfies hardly any of the criteria of the just war theory thank you uh, well let's see with the just war first of course i accept that the 1916 rising doesn't meet the criteria for a just war. 
course it doesn't. All I'm saying is that you cannot expect revolutionaries who are planning to overthrow the existing state of things to start engaging in debates on Catholic moral theology. That's Maybe they should, but that's not the way the world works. Never has, and my judgment never will. Let's get back to Mr. Bruton. I disagree with virtually everything he says about 1916. In particular, you put your finger on the key point, speculative. His whole argument is speculative. His whole argument consists of saying, we must condemn whatever happened in 1916 because we would have achieved the same end. We would become independent anyway. No evidence whatever for that. None whatever. It demands sort of the making. And all you've got to do is look at the home rule bill that when the British returned to the Irish question after the Great War is over in the autumn of 1919, they propose home rule again, except this time it's for two parliaments in order to safeguard the position of the Ulster Unionists. And that act, or what became the Government of Ireland Act of 1920, was never intended to satisfy Irish national aspirations. Lord George admitted to his backbenchers privately, on various occasions, that he was ultimately going to have to talk to Sinn Féin. But he also recognised that for his own political survival, because by that stage he was completely dependent on the Conservative Party for its majority, and by that stage he realises that he has to sort out Ulster first, and he does. And it's no coincidence that it's immediately after the Northern Ireland Parliament has been opened and the Northern Ireland government's up and running that we get a truce and that he enters into negotiations with Sinn Féin. I mean, when that bill came before the Cabinet, one of the Cabinet Ministers, F.E. Smith, Lord Birkenhead, as he then was, was more honest than most. He said, I, and he insisted on writing this into the Cabinet Minute Book, I am agreeing to this measure only because I believe there is not the remote... I am quoting from memory now, I may not have it exactly right. I am agreeing to this measure only because I know there is not the remotest chance that Sinn Féin would accept it. So, you know, what John Bruton says is, you know, why didn't we just believe in the good faith of British governments? Why couldn't we just... Well, I'm sorry. Look at what the British government did between 1886 and 1914. At the end of the day, nothing. There is still not a Home Rule Parliament. And all, many of the people who, who became important in 1916, Pierce, Eamon de Valera, many, many others, they began as Home Rule rulers. But the war began, and there was still no Home Rule Parliament in Dublin. And the idea that, you know, in some kind of way, all is going to come good and Ireland is going to be given independence by a beneficent Britain, there's no evidence, not a shred of evidence to support it. And speculation seems to me to be a very, very poor... I'm completely opposed to counterfactual history and to speculation as a foundation for historical investigation. It's nonsense. Thank you very much. Um, enjoyed that lecture very much, Professor Fran Fanning, and particularly in relation to the cause and effect 
dimension. Um, and I'd agree with what you said, uh, as regrettable as it might have been, but the catalyst of 1916 certainly um, has brought us in many ways to where we are now. But all that being said, there was within the 1916 leaders uh, something of particular interest to me, a great interest in the Irish language. Um, and in Desmond Fitzgerald's memoirs, it's spoken about um, between himself and the Arachli that uh, on retreating from the GPO, that if it was possible, if the English speakers could go first to reduce the losses to Irish speakers. Now, that was... I didn't know that. <laughs> that, that was said tongue-in-cheek from, uh, from what I can say. I didn't know that. That's wonderful. <laughs> but th that being said, it does indicate a particular interest and a particular um, motivation uh, in, in the actions that were taken as well. And I wonder, it seems ironic now, perhaps looking back, but would you uh, I, I have any thoughts on comparing, for example, the Irish situation and the Welsh situation, where having, main, having won um, you know, constitutional independence here, the flag sufficed in many ways as a badge of nationhood, whereas somewhere like Wales, which still is in the UK, would um, have to fight harder to maintain and to assert its identity and the language serves a purpose there. So ironically, the 1916 rising, having, having been motivated uh, along with Conor Gaelic and the Celtic revival as a, a badge of identity, um, may have taken the wind out of the sails, perhaps, of the Irish language revival um, in retrospect. Mm. I think that's a most interesting question. And I'd agree with the broad thrust of what you're say, saying. Uh, one of the things that happens in, in the 1920s, and one of, the thing, one of the reasons why the state becomes such an unpleasant place, uh, for not just for members of the Church of Ireland, but for, 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 for anybody of any liberal inclinations or independent-mindedness, is that because of the Civil War, the, the remaining badges of identity, the, the phrase that you use, which I think is very appropriate, what the pro and anti-treaty sides can both cling to is what they have in common. And what they have in common is on the one hand their Catholicism, and on the other hand their support for the Irish language. And there's a passage in the Doyle, I can't, in the Doyle debates, I can't remember exactly when it was, I think it was 22 or maybe 23, when there's almost a sort of competition. W.T. Cosgrave is talking about how his son's baptism certificate, Liam Cosgrave, who became Taoiseach in 73, was issued in Irish. And fellows on the other side are saying what they've done in Irish. And it's really pretty pathetic. But the other point you make about the comparison with Wales is most interesting because there's no, well, in my own case, I had the misfortune to be educated, well, perhaps educated in spite of the Christian brothers uh, in the 1950s. And I, and I now regret this, bitterly resented having Irish forced down my throat. Now, of course, in Wales, it's not being forced down anybody's throat. It's voluntary, and that's the difference. And one of the very interesting things which would support your point 
is what happens to recruitment, membership of the Gaelic League after independence. And the numbers wanting to enrol in the Gaelic League, once Ireland becomes independent, drops dramatically because it's no longer important because we are independent. And there's no doubt that an awful lot of people who joined the Gaelic League and the people who probably joined the GAA as well in what Roy Foster describes as the revolutionary generation uh, or generations, that these people were getting involved in these things in order to express a different kind of identity. And, and Irish no longer serves that kind of purpose anymore. So, but as I said in the beginning of my response to your question, I'd, I'd be very broadly supportive of, of what you're saying. Just, um, just a few comments there, Professor. Um, just, just in reference to 1948 and the Declaration of the Republic, it's just that my study of that seems to suggest that that was a moment of peak, I think, by the the acting uh, Taoiseach at the time when he was at a con attending some dinner in Canada. And I think he got, as they say these days, he got thick over some reference that was made and announced that he was going to declare a republic. So whether it was part of a pattern, I don't, I don't really think so, because I know, I, again, from my research, Eamon de Valera, uh, probably going back to the old document number two with the, the, the circles touching but not in, in, you know, not going into one another, felt that by doing that we were losing any hope or substantially any hope of attaining a united Ireland because we were then putting ourselves very firmly outside the Commonwealth. That's, that's just one comment. The, the other thing I think that Apropos what you're saying there of the, uh, the British government and the, 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 the argument about, oh, if we had waited, as John, John Bruton says, and I totally agree with you, because the proof of the pudding was that, say, for instance, the Curra Mutiny. Yeah. I mean, there was an absolutely thing. These were officers were told to, to do something, and because it was going to go mean that they'd have to go up to the north and try and restore order or do something, they said, no, we're not going to do this. And not one of them was court-martialed. Well, they didn't, yeah. Just, I mean, you're absolutely right. And again, the broad thrust of your argument. They didn't actually say, they were offered a hypothetical question that was posed, which yes. is why some people don't actually call it, refuse to call it a mutiny. mutiny but what, yeah. what they were put was, in the event of this happening, what would you mm. do? Mm. But... With that caveat, yes, you're absolutely yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So what I'm saying here is that that the 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 assuming that 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 everything was going to come right, somebody has used the phrase of saying, by the time they had created Northern Ireland, you know, the Free State was was the bit that was left over. So they, I think yeah. they were pursuing. I mean, Asquith and and Lloyd George and these people. I mean, he was the Welsh wizard and so on. He ran rings around, around John yeah. Redmond. Yeah. John Redmond was incapable. Now, I'm not going to go down the road about the treaty and all the rest of it, whether Jeff should have gone or not. Um, I'm a great admirer of Jeff there. I'm glad to say that I shook hands with him once. And I, I, I said to him uh, something in Irish, and he answered me with the correct answer. And I was amazed that he, that he just came back at me. He said, Go But whether Jeff should have gone or not is irrelevant. 
the, the, the careers, I think, of those men was more, the, the political careers of the, of the, the Lloyd Georges and those, they were more concerned about that. And then you had Craig and Carson, uh, you know, John Redmond made a massive mistake there, but he was offered a seat in the cabinet and he, he didn't take it. So either he, I mean, if he had gone in there, he would have been more aware of, of the, the skullduggery which was taking place at the time. That their whole emphasis was to deal with the loyalist section of their United Kingdom and then the rest of it would be sorted out. And so I don't think, and I totally agree with you, that you, can, you could assume, based on their track record, that we could have trusted them to have given it to us which brings it back to saying that it needed this massive catalyst of the revolution, of the rising, of the shedding of blood before we were taken seriously. And as I said last night, six years later, we got our treaty. It was a shabby thing. It wasn't what everybody wanted, but it was the beginning, as Collins said, freedom to obtain freedom. And the ironic thing was that it was de Valera who used it to achieve yeah. everything else yeah. and all the way through. He outmaneuvered, took advantage of the abdication of the king at the time to run, rush legislation through, played a blinder, let's be honest. So it's, it's, it's fascinating, but again, I thank you. It's, it's been most interesting. Mina Margaret. Okay, uh, well now, I think your question, first of all, it's 1948. For, for what you said after that, I, I, I'm, I'm not going to respond to what you said after that because I'm, I'm, you're obviously in agreement with me and I'm in agreement with you. So I, I, I don't think there's, there's much value in, in, in my going beyond saying that I don't disagree with anything that you said and this is the second part of your remarks. 1948, yeah, you're, you're right, but you're not altogether right. Uh, the actual timing and the actual circumstance, there was certainly peak uh, involved in that. Uh, however, there had been some discussions within the cabinet privately that, and Costello and uh, McBride and also the leader of the Labour Party, William Norton, and others were, there was a kind of consensus. It, 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 it had never been really pinned down or thrashed out. There was a kind of consensus that the External Relations Act you know, had to go and that the, any ambiguity about the Republic that the state should be declared a republic. But the circumstances under which it happened came as a profound surprise, among others, to Sean McBride. And John Costello, I think, I saw him once responding to a student paper, uh, the auditor of the Student Society, and he always struck me as being a choleric man. Uh, and, and I think he was, th th there is this story that he, he took umbrage at the decoration, the table decoration, at the dinner which he was given by the Governor-General in Canada, which was Roaring Meg, the cannon in Derry. Well, be that as it may, certainly the circumstances under which he did it were ham-fisted, stupid, inept. You, you, you don't do that kind of thing. And the difference with de Valera couldn't be more marked. De Valera understood that if you're a small state wanting to get your way with a great power, you tell them what you're going to do, and you tell them what you're going to do ad nauseum. Then as you're doing it, you tell them what you're doing. Then when you've done it, you tell them what you've done. 
There are no surprises. You don't surprise them. Costello, I mean, it's like Dermot Kew in his History of 20th Century Ireland. He describes the foreign policy of the inter-party government as being like foreign policy conducted by the Marx Brothers. And, and, you know, it's not far wrong. And the other thing, of course, which was, I mean, I don't think that, well, whatever you call the state, I, I don't think it was going to make a difference to the view of, of the unionists, frankly. But de Valera was, I mean, the, 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 the other corresponding mistake, and, and this had to do with McBride's rampant anglophobia, uh, was to insist that because we were declaring ourselves a republic, we were leaving the Commonwealth. We didn't have to say that at all. India's about to become a republic. And de Valera was asked, when he was passing through London, he paid a courtesy call in, on Churchill in 1953, and he was asked if he'd leave the Commonwealth. He said, no. He said, I think the Commonwealth's most useful. But of course, once having left the Commonwealth, because of the burden of our history, we can hardly apply to go back in. And, and so, but that, I think, was, was another profound mistake. The other thing I think you've got to bear in mind with Costello and, and, and the Fine Gael Party, the former Commonwealth Party, is that they're sick and tired being told that they aren't as good nationalists, that they aren't as true and patriotic Irishman as Fianna Fáil. And there's a certain sense in which I think Costello is trying to show, you know, how green Fine Gael are in 1948. And I think that plays into the peak. But it was very, very badly mismanaged. Thank you. Um, hi. I, I just wanted to, um, maybe I'm laboring the point, but I suppose going back to the legitimacy of 1916 and... Going back to? The legitimacy of 1916, it was, as we agree, it was retrospectively successful. But is, is part of the criticism that constitutional nationalist means had not yet been exhausted is there a feeling that it was a, the rush to violence and then the uh, sorry I just lost my thought there but the um, yes that the excuse is that not, the reason offered is that well the British would not ne ever have granted the uh, home rule by constitutional means but is that not the same is that not speculation again that we didn't test them we never, we never pushed it so, therefore, we are saying, you know, we are speculating to say that they would not have when we had the opportunity in a few years just to, to call their bluff. And that then would have been a more legitimate rising had it happened a few years later. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't necessarily argue for the legitimacy of what happened in 1916. But not celebrating, I mean, I, I think if you're coming I, I don't think... In my attitude to 1916, I don't see myself as celebrating the legitimacy of what happened in 1916. I do see myself as regarding it as significant insofar as it became a first step on the path to independence. And I think that has to be. And the reason why it is that is because the, the, the British blundered. The British had got out of the habit of executing leaders of risings and rebellions. They hadn't... 1803 with Robert Emmett was the last one. 1848, the Young Irelanders, no, they didn't dream of executing anybody. 
send them off to Van Diemen's Land or wherever. The Fenians in the 1860s, same thing. Don't execute them. Makes them martyrs. But you see, they lost sight of that because of the much more catastrophically, the, 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 the much more catastrophic scale, the wider violence of the Great War. Where Asquith lost his eldest son, and most of the cabinet, many of the cabinet ministers had lost sons. So they surrendered the decision making process to whoever was controlling the martial law regime. It's the Lord Lieutenant who declares martial law. And that was the beginning of the era. And that meant that the British government were just watching what was happening. Now, suddenly they realize that this is going to have a very bad effect. And they tell Maxwell, look, stop the executions. They lean on him to stop the executions. And he did stop the executions. But by that stage, the damage was done. And it's, if it weren't for the executions, you know, it may very well have been, not have been, the first step on the path to independence. So I think, I think you do need to distinguish between what you, the point you made in your own question about legitimacy and retrospectively successful. It was retrospectively successful. In other words, the revolution, the rebellion of 1916 was not successful. But the Irish Revolution of 1916-21 was successful. And there would have been no Irish Revolution in 1916-1921 without the rebellion. Because the British response to the rebellion was the catalyst for the success of the Irish Revolution. So that's the way I see it anyway. Professor Ronan Fanning, I think uh, the logic of your argument has been so persuasive. It's amazing. Thank you sincerely for a nuanced paper for the differentiation of historiography and commemoration and for a thought that troubles me. If there hadn't been martyrs, there may not have been a revolution. And does that feed into... Pierce's mythological reading of the he situation. Would so. <laughs> he would say so. He would say so. It's a troubling thought, isn't it? Anyway. Professor Fanning, fantastic. Thank you. <laughs>